You're listening to Digging In, where we dig into the insurance topics, trends, and news surrounding all things agribusiness. Here is your host, Bruce Droz. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Alliant Agribusiness podcast. This is Bruce Droz of Alliant Agribusiness. And with me today is Trey Bush, Executive Vice President of Alliant Agribusiness, as well as a special guest, Bobby Horn. Bobby is Vice President of Alliant Management and Professional Solutions. He's also the cyber leader within the group. Welcome, Bobby. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Trey, nice to see you as well. Great to have you here. So at Alliant Agribusiness, we deal with multiple facets of the food chain from farmers and grower shippers, all the input companies, the fertilizer, ag chemical, seed, equipment. Now, on the other end of the, of the growing chain, the distribution, food processors. So it's quite the gamut of types of businesses and sizes of businesses from medium size up to very large. And in our travels and our conversations with our clients and prospects, cyber is on everybody's mind. It's in the news all the time. Everybody knows somebody that has been hit by an attack if they haven't been hit by themselves. Bobby, just to kind of start the conversation, what do you think it is about agribusiness that attracts these cyber criminals? And what do you think it is about the various sizes? It seems like whether you're small or large, you're still at risk. Speak to us about that, if you would. Yeah, I think specifically with respect to agricultural business, I think as the industry becomes more technologically advanced, right, become more more online of an online platform, they become a more of a target for these bad actors, right? So, I mean, traditional targets for cyber criminal activity were manufacturers, higher education, municipalities, that type of risk. But as we see the agricultural industry become more and more technologically advanced, they've got more of a target on their back. And so I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing a rise in attacks against this type of business. And as far as the size, obviously, the larger the, the company, the bigger the target they have, but it's really the small and medium-sized businesses that don't have the right controls in place that make them more susceptible to, to an attack. Obviously, the bigger the company, more of, a, of an IT budget they have. But we see it not just in agricultural, but really in all industry classes. Those smaller businesses are having more of a difficult time dealing with this cyber risk because they don't have the, the controls or the, the funds or the, the, the backing for a large IT group compared to some of the larger competitors. Yeah, and I think it's it's maybe just a lack of knowledge in a lot of cases of knowing what they need to do. Farming and agriculture and food processing, all that stuff, it has become very technologically dependent these days where you think of farming and growing as a as a low-tech natural, it's done by nature, right? You get water and seed and dirt. And however, technology is a huge part of things in the field in terms of the equipment that's being used. In the packing houses, a lot of the equipment is all automated and interconnected. And of course, in the office side, the accounting is all done using sophisticated software programs. So you talked about the controls and not having resources to do the controls. Let's talk about that a little more because the insurance marketplace is in pretty much disarray right now. And you can speak to this on the cyber side. It's in disarray in other areas too, but for obvious reasons on the cyber side. And we're finding that insurers are demanding certain things sometimes with not a lot of notice before the renewal. So what are you seeing in that area? 
it's been a struggle for us on the brokerage side dealing with the, the different requests and demands that the carriers are, are looking for. And it's all as a result of the claims that they're paying, right? I mean, so I guess on the bright side is that the insurance policies are actually paying out. So that, that's good, right? It's, it's a good thing that for our clients to understand that if you have a policy, more likely than not, you're going to get paid for that. Because of the amount of losses, the carriers are seeing, okay, well, we had a ransom attack. Where was the point of impact? So things like multi-factor authentication, that's probably the, the number one control that we're seeing carriers require. And without it, we can't get quotes. That's not only just for new business, but also for renewal business as well. And you're right. Sometimes the deadline put on our clients is almost unreasonable. And the problem with that is that along with these requirements they have, underwriters are putting on, on our clients, they keep moving the goalposts on us. So they, they may ask for multi-factor authentication just for email, right? So we confirm with our clients, great, you've got multi-factor authentication for email. But then we present it to the underwriters and they say, well, now we want to see it for remote desktop protocol and and virtual desktop, virtual logins, as well as privileged access. So they keep, like I said, moving the goalposts on us and requiring additional information on top of what you know we think is a good risk to begin with. Things on top of multi-factor authentication, we're seeing requirements to have offline backups, in- encrypted backups, you know, the use of what we call endpoint detection. We're also seeing carriers require uh, some sort of network monitoring software that can look at the incoming traffic of your into your network. And short of that, carriers are saying, you know, we're just not interested in writing this risk anymore. So it's been a real uphill battle and a challenge for us to to kind of deal with these changes and requirements that the end are looking for. So if a client, if a business does not have robust internal resources like an IT department, and they're faced with these requests and demands in order to get a quote and get insurance on the cyber side, if, if someone is already insured and has a cyber policy, are there any resources available that kind of come with that from the insurer that could help them through that process? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the main aspects and, and components of these cyber policies is that they have pre what we call pre-breach services. So things like employee training, that's a, that's a big one, right? You know, we talked about MFA and, and backup controls, but employee training is, is also a, a key cog in, in the underwriting requirements. So whether it's companies like No Before, they're, they're a pretty well-known training company. That's one thing. Tabletop exercises, right? So if you have an incident response plan, are you able to actually test that? So the carriers will provide services to help you make sure that in the event of an actual ransomware attack, all the pieces are in place and you know what to do. So you're not handling it for the first time. We are starting to see more and more carriers also offer for a discount, right? Not necessarily part of the premium, but for a discount, the use of some of their third-party technology vendors to get you things like multi-factor authentication or EDR tool. So I think that's kind of the, the shift is that we're seeing some of these carriers the ones that are more leading edge, offering more of these technology software platforms to their policyholders because they understand, look, number one, it's going to cost an arm and a leg if you do this without us. And number two, some don't have the wherewithal to actually know who to go to. So by partnering with these vendors, these carriers, some of these carriers anyway, are making it easier for their policyholders to become a better risk. Well, that's good. There's definitely some value-added services that policyholders need to be aware of, definitely. You know, once a breach does happen, Bobby, Talk to the robustness of what the carriers provide at the time of a breach and how it may vary from carrier to carrier, because it's one thing to buy the policy. It's another thing to have boots on the ground when the claim hits, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we talked about pre-breach services, obviously the where the rubber meets the road is, is the post-breach services. So depending on the carrier, they all, all good carrier, all good cyber carriers have a panel of vendors that you can work with. And that ranges from the you know, computer forensics teams through legal counsel, public relations and crisis management teams. So ideally what we'd like to do for our clients is make sure that we have a dedicated vendor prior to any breach, that when, in the event of a breach, we know who we're, we're dealing with first, rather than going through that kind of pick and choose process after a claim. That just, it takes time and time really is money in the event of, specifically with respect to a ransomware attack. But the, the vendors, and again, it varies with each carrier, will help you with respect to the computer forensics firms, right? To help you get back online, help you remediate and repair any lost data. And then the, the law firms, of course, the cyber specialty law firms. So they specialize in data breaches, specifically with respect to privacy, you know, loss. If there's, there's a loss of consumer information, and you need to notify customers, they're specialists, and they know that because there's 50 different state notification requirements, they'll help you draft those letters and get those out within whether it's the 10, 15, or 30-day requirement by each state. So that's really important to make sure that you have a, a good understanding of who your panel vendors are, and more importantly, making sure that you're picking those vendors prior to any sort of breach occurring. Some carriers, again, it, it varies between carriers, like a company like Easy, for instance, right? They are pretty much, it's our way or the highway. So you don't use their vendors, you're out of luck. So we've had instances where, where companies bought a policy, they had a claim, and they used their own vendors. And then we submitted to, they submit to, to us and to Beasley and these as well. You know, unfortunately, they're not in the panel. It's not covered. Um, other carriers provide a sublimit. You go off panel, and then still other carriers will allow you to endorse non-panel vendors onto their, their policy, but subject to their preferred rates. So it's really important that you make sure you understand the difference between panel vendor versus non-panel vendor and what is available to you as a policyholder. That's a really important point, I think, because in the ag space, there tend to be third-party vendors that these folks use, and they're critical because they really are their outsourced IT department, and they do an awful lot of work to try to support and resolve the issue, and if you've got a carrier that's not accepting that, it could create a real problem between the broker, the client, and the carrier. And so it's really important to understand that before you have a claim. It is, right? These companies, whether it's farming or processing, they have a they have a business to focus on. They're not they're not necessarily focused on IT. So they allow us to do outsource, like you said. So that is an important part to mention that again, even before the policy is bound, you want to have these conversations with our clients to make sure they understand what is available to them. And if necessary, if we need to endorse that specific vendor, that the carrier understands and underwrites that beforehand. And while we're talking about these types of services provided by the carriers, can you speak a little bit about the forensic piece of this that the policies can provide? Because the amount of time it takes a client to recreate and then justify and verify their loss can be extremely taxing on a client without a robust financial department. Yeah. So I think what you're referring to is the business interruption side, right? So we talk about different areas of loss. Obviously, ransomware is most top of mind for a lot of our clients for obvious reasons. But what people don't tend to think about is the business interruption loss associated with ransomware. So you may have a ransomware attack and the demand is $5 million and you decide, well, you know what? We're not going to pay it because we have good backups, but you're going to be down for a week. And so Trey, to your point, it's not the carrier's not just going to write a check for you know your lost income for those seven days. You need to provide detailed information that show, okay, this is what our, our expected income was for this amount of time. And, and that, that comes with the heavy burden on the, on, the, on the insured. And so, look, the carrier is going to have their own accounting forensics on their side. 
our job as a broker is to also provide an independent forensic accounting firm so that we can provide that information and defend our client to make sure that they're getting the most out of the policy. We've been successful in getting the carriers to add a supplement, whether it's 100000 or 150000 or $200,000, the cost to hire an outside forensic accounting team to help prepare those business interruption spreadsheets. But it's, it's, again, it's a good point to bring up because people kind of tend to not think about that side of the, of the loss when they're hit with a ransomware attack. But we're seeing that the business interruption loss tends to be higher than the actual ransomware payment. Since we're on the theme of talking about claims, let's stick with that a little bit. What, what we're seeing from a frequency standpoint on the agribusiness side is the ransomware, of course, uh, which is getting a lot of the press. But the other thing, maybe even more so, is the continuation of social engineering claims. And just so all of our listeners know what we're talking about here, could you give an, an example of both types of claims, actually? Yeah. So social engineering claims, say you've got an email from someone that looks like the right name from a vendor of yours asking you to wire funds to an account or services provided. Person, let's say on the control team, takes that information, wires, let's say $100,000 to that to that account. And then two days later, the CFO comes saying, hey, where did this money go? Why did you send it? Oh, it was, it was from our vendor. And then we get a call from the vendor saying, oh, we were hacked. Someone got into our systems. You're at $100,000. So the, the policies do provide some extension of coverage for social engineering, right? So it's typically sublimated to 100000 250000 in some cases 500000 There There are still outliers where we can get full limits. I say full limits, a million dollars for that type of coverage. But it is available. Uh, and there's different extensions of cybercrime. So you've got, obviously, social engineering where you're someone purports to be someone that you, you're familiar with. There's also invoice manipulation where your systems are, are hacked and the information on the invoices are altered. So that the money goes to somebody else, we're seeing more and more carriers offer that coverage as well. So you're right. I mean, ransomware certainly is the kind of buzzword in the insurance industry right now. But social engineering attacks are still probably more prevalent than any other loss that we see on our book. And really, when you think about how do you prevent that, it boils down to the human element and the basic picking up the phone and calling the person you know to confirm that the request is legitimate. That's really the only defense for it. Yeah, it's, and it's a good point to make sure you, we highlight the fact that you pick up the phone. Because I, I could tell you a pretty funny claim where we had a client, it was a, a property manager and somebody in the finance department received an email asking for money to be paid to this account. So the email looks suspicious. So rather than pick up the phone, they just responded back to the email and it said, is this a legitimate request? Right, <laughs> thinking they're doing the right thing. Of course, the person at the other end says, "Yes, of course, it's legitimate." You know, what are you waiting for? Get this money wired over. So that individual then wired three separate payments of two hundred fifty thousand dollars over the course of a week. Thankfully, the client was able to recover five hundred thousand dollars of that seven hundred fifty thousand dollars total loss. But it's things like that where someone thinks they're doing the right thing, but by picking up the phone, they could have saved themselves a lot of money and their jobs, and they eventually did get terminated. But yeah, it's having those policies and procedures in place and making sure your employees are aware of what they are. So training goes a long, long way because no matter how great your controls are, you could have the best systems in the world. It all comes down to the human element, as you mentioned, Bruce, and it all takes is one employee to click on a link or in this case, not take the extra step to, to call to verify payment is legitimate. So continuing to think about coverages and, and the policy, you know, a lot of insurance policies have a lot of different options and different things that can be added that need to be aware of. Cyber policies haven't really been around all that long in the big scheme of insurance. It's they're fairly recent. And our sense is that the coverages are pretty comprehensive 
for cyber. And most carriers, you know, don't offer a lot of pick and choose, but most of the, the policies automatically include, I would say, the majority of the coverages that you'd want as a policyholder. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say even your basic off-the-shelf insurance policy in a cyber marketplace, it covers a good amount of, of uh, loss scenarios. So it's, it covers your traditional third-party liability. So if claims are brought against an insured for, let's say, a network security attack or loss of private information, you've got coverage for defense and settlement. And then more importantly, all the first-party coverages, you know, a lot will be talked about today, the breach response costs, the computer forensics, the ransomware payments, the business interruption loss. Those are all caked into your even your you know off-the-shelf basic policy form. Obviously, we as brokers, our job is to dive a little deeper and, and change, you know, make sure we can make amendments to the policy to tighten up some of the, the language, lessen some of those broader exclusions, and, and add coverage where we can. But I think for the most part, the policies do what they're intended to do. Well, certainly a lot of people, including us, are concerned about the state of the marketplace with the huge number of claims that are coming into the cyber arena. What's your read on the current um, insurance market for cyber and where do you see it going? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a difficult marketplace right now. I mean, certainly the hardest market in the 20 plus years this, this product has been around. Starting the end of 2020, really with that the solar wind supply chain attack, where we started to see the, the carriers really take notice and start to firm up their terms and conditions. So we're seeing anywhere, on average, I think our clients experience an 80% increase in renewal premium this year alone. On top of that, we're seeing a real restriction of limits as well. So towers of $100 million with 10 carriers, each putting up 10, now we're looking at $100 million with 20 carriers, everyone's only putting up five. So it's been a real challenge to try and get carriers on risk. And on top of that, right, we're also seeing increases in retentions. So the carriers are looking to have, you know, the insurers have a little more skin in the game, right? They want to have them, okay, look, we're paying these losses. We want you to also pay a little bit more than what you, more than your your, your share that you've been paying. And I think until we see a, a broader adoption of stronger controls and policies and procedures on the insured side, we're going to continue to see these firms, these rates firming up even more. Even the best clients with the best controls, we're seeing increases, not just in premiums, but also retentions. So anything we can do to differentiate our clients, to make them a better risk to present them to the marketplace is going to help. But I still think we're a ways away. I think at least a year before we see calming down of these rates. And I think many of our clients have experienced already the pains of going through renewal. I mean, again, these things can happen overnight. It takes sometimes in certain cases months to implement something like MSA across the board or or having a, a more robust security operations center or a security incident monitoring tool. So they're not going to you know, necessarily reap the benefits of those controls until until next renewal. Yeah, Bobby, we recently had a renewal take place where our client was adamant they were never going to pay a ransom. And we were able to get options where they excluded the ransom payment and actually help provide capacity to our client. Are you seeing a lot of that being done in the marketplace? So we're able to provide a lot of different solutions for our clients with respect to renewed coverage. While we would love to be able to provide full limits across the board for all insurance limits to our clients, it's not always not always feasible, certainly based on controls that are in place. So things like co-insurance are being introduced. And what I mean by co-insurance is that in the event of a loss, the client is responsible for not only the retention, but a percentage of the loss associated with any ransomware attack. So not just the, the ransomware payment itself, but anything associated with the loss. So the business interruption costs, the data forensics, remediation, uh, legal counsel, all those costs are considered ransomware loss. So the insured is responsible for, let's say, 10, 25, or 50% of that coverage. And, and there's also times where we can say, you know, can we just not 
pick up the extortion coverage, which certainly carriers are more than willing to provide that option. We necessarily wouldn't want to do that, but like we have had scenarios where clients had a ransomware loss and we needed to, it was a limit loss and we had to find a new policy in place. And the, one of the solutions or one of the options we provided was a go forward policy that did not include cyber extortion. But the, the key there, right, because you don't read the fine print, it, it can be a little tricky. They can not cover cyber extortion coverage, so right, the, the actual ransomware payment, but they're still going to cover the associated loss with it. So the business interruption, the computer forensic, the legal counsel, that's a, that's a clear distinction to make because other carriers will say, we're not going to cover any ransomware loss, which really is, is a difficult pill to swallow, especially in the event of a claim. But yeah, whether it's higher retention, co-insurance, sublimiting the cyber extortion coverage itself, there's different ways to go about it and making sure the clients at least have an option to buy. Bobby, thank you so much for spending that time uh, with us today and sharing your insights into the into the cyber world and the world of cyber insurance. Trey Bush, thank you for joining us today. Again, this is Bruce Rose of Align Agribusiness uh, signing off this podcast. And for our listeners, for more information, please go to www.alliant.com. 